Ann and I had a wonderful trip last uh, week, uh, kind of a whirlwind trip out to Vancouver, British Columbia to be with our former church for their 50th anniversary. And it was an emotional time. It was so wonderful to see so many people who we loved so much and to remember how much we appreciated them. But it was also a reinforcement for us that, that we're home here. And we were glad to be home and to be home with you and, and to realize how much we appreciate and love you. So thank you. Thank you for your uh, returning the favor to us this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, open it up to First Peter. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the chair back in front of you. And you can open up that Bible to page 857 where you'll find First Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at First Peter this week and next week, and then I believe Second Peter for the two weeks after that, if I have my schedule right in my mind. Maybe it's three weeks in First Peter and two in Second Peter. Anyway, imagine, as we begin to get our minds around First Peter, imagine living in a slum in a developing country. Your parents have died of AIDS. Your brother and sister and you have, have stuck together to survive on the streets. You're brokenhearted, you're malnourished, you're threatened. And you make your way to an orphanage eventually where conditions are barely better. But a Western couple comes there looking to adopt a sibling group. And they're kind and they're gentle and they're warm. They leave. Then several weeks later, you get the news. They're adopting all three of you. As soon as all the paperwork is ready, they'll come and they'll take you home to be a part of their family. That's much like the situation of the churches that the Apostle Peter was writing to in the letter that we're looking at this morning, his first letter, 1 Peter. These churches were scattered throughout northern Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, they had formerly been pagan idol worshipers, most likely. But God had found them, and God had chosen them to be his own. Early Christian evangelists had visited that region and preached the good news about Jesus, and these folks had joyfully responded. That turn of events had changed everything for them. Now they were living like foreigners or exiles in the pagan Roman Empire of the first century, waiting for God to come back and to bring them home. In the meantime, though, things have grown tough for them. They're being persecuted for their new faith. They're enduring many hardships. And so the Apostle Peter writes them a letter to encourage them and to teach them how to live as they await the arrival of the one who has adopted them into his new family. And through this letter, God teaches us to see our situation in much the same way. Our passage this morning, chapter 1, verses 13 to 25, which George read for us, is permeated by two major images. The first image is that of the exodus from Egypt. When God had rescued his people years before through Moses from their suffering and their oppression in Egypt. We see that in verse 13. It begins... Prepare your minds for action. At least that's the way we tend to translate it in our English translations. But literally it reads, and when you hear this, you'll see why we translate it differently. Gird up the loins of your mind. Huh? <laughs> it's an allusion to the first Passover. 
on the eve of the exodus from Egypt when God told his people, hike up your robes, tuck them into your belts so that you're ready to move out when I rescue you. We also see this Exodus imagery in verse 18 where it says you were redeemed. That's Exodus language. We see it again in verse 16 where Peter quotes a verse from the book of Leviticus which was written during the time of the Exodus. Be holy as I am holy. So we have this Exodus image. The second main image in our passage is the image of belonging to a new family, God's family. Verse 14, we have as obedient children. Verse 17, you call on a father. Verse 22, love for your brothers and sisters. Verse 23, born again. Family imagery. Peter is encouraging us to see ourselves as strangers or exiles, as verse 17 puts it, who no longer belong where we're staying. Why? Because God has redeemed us. God is leading us out of our suffering and affliction. And because we have been adopted or born again into a new family. That's why. We have a new father and he's coming for us. Just like he came for the Israelites at the first exodus, he's coming to rescue us from this place so that we can be with him as his children in a much better place forever. So how do we live in the meantime? In the long meantime, sometimes it feels long. Well, that's what Peter teaches us in today's passage. His passage here contains four imperatives, four commands. Your English translation may contain more than four, but that's because they've smoothed out Peter's long, complex Greek sentences so that we can follow them more easily. In the original Greek, there's four commands that Peter gives us. Here they are. Verse 13 Set your hope fully. Verse 15, be holy as God is holy. Verse 17, live your lives in reverent fear. And verse 22, love one another deeply. Now, if mnemonics help you to remember things, then here are four F's to help you remember them. Say these four after me. The first F is future focus. Say it. Future focus. Family holiness, fear, and fervent love. All right, got it? Future focus, family holiness, fear, fervent love. Let's look at each one of these. Since we've been adopted or born again into a wonderful family and we're living as strangers and aliens here, waiting for our redemption when our Father comes for us, we should first of all keep our focus on the future. Peter puts it this way in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Set your hope. Hope, that's the Bible word for what we have our sights set on, what we're looking forward to in the future. And biblical hope isn't a wish. It isn't a maybe. It's a rock-solid certainty, an anchor, a definite in a life of indefinites. Think of those children living in a squalid orphanage. But they've been adopted or they're being adopted. And they know that any day now their new parents are going to walk through the door of that orphanage to whisk them away to a better and a new life. Peter says that's true of you and me. One day Jesus Christ is going to show up. 
He's going to interrupt whatever's going on at the moment. Maybe the stressful project at work. The petty bickering in your family. The illness a loved one is suffering through. The wars the nations are waging. The homework you're stressing over. The debt you're worrying about how you're going to pay. When Jesus arrives, all of that will suddenly be a non-issue. Like waking up from a bad dream when you realize to your relief that that dreadful thing that was going to happen isn't really true at all. For those of us who know and love Jesus, we'll look into the warm, welcoming face of our greatest love. And yet at the same time, we'll feel naked and unworthy and undone by his holy purity and his searching gaze. Yet on us, he will heap grace upon grace to wash us, to clothe us, to purify us, to embrace us. As he welcomes us into his family and into a new heavens and a new earth where everything good about this world is embraced and redeemed and transformed into the fullness of what it was always meant to be. And as we will be embraced and redeemed and transformed into the fullness of what we are meant to be. So Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Be future focused. As we saw in the beginning of verse 13, Peter compares this future mindset to mentally pulling up the hem of your robe and tucking it into your belt so you're ready to move out. He also compares it to being sober, or some translations say self-controlled. I think sober is a better translation. There's something clear and focused about keeping the future in view. And there's something fuzzy and out of focus about forgetting the future. When we left Vancouver, B.C. two years ago to move back to the East Coast, in the weeks before we left, we were packing, we were selling our car, we were giving things away. Why? We were focused on our future. Had we been out shopping, buying new furniture to, to spruce up our townhouse, which we were about to sell, Our friends would have thought we were drunk, fuzzy-minded. They'd have said, what are you doing? Don't you remember that you're about to leave? So Peter says to us, as you live as exiles and foreigners in this world with all of its struggles and its enticements, you've got to be sober. Mentally tuck in your robes. Get your mind ready for action. Be focused on your future. Jesus is coming. His grace will be revealed. You're going to be redeemed from this place and you will enjoy the presence and love of your new family. So think this way. Live this way. Be future focused. That's his first command to us. His second is that we are to reflect the holiness of our new family. Verses 14 and 15. As obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The issue here is what we're being molded into. Peter says, don't get molded into the shape 
of the desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Rather, get molded into the shape of your new father and your new family. Think of those three kids in the orphanage. They might as well stop behaving like the other kids in the orphanage who have no hope. Because the three of them have been adopted, they belong to a new family now, and a new way of behaving is going to be expected of them. They'll have a new family name. They will need to become like that family and to behave in a way befitting of that new family name. They can't live like orphans anymore. That's what Peter's urging on us. We used to live in ignorance. We just went with our desires. If it felt good, we did it if we thought we could get away with it. If we wanted it, we bought it. If we could afford it or if we could charge it. If we felt like saying it, we said it. We went with our desires, our desires for revenge, our desires for sex with whoever we wanted to with no responsibility, our desires for food or drink, our desires for possessions, our desires for acceptance, our desires for security. Those desires molded us into the people we were. But no longer, Peter says, no longer. We are children now of the Heavenly Father. We're leaving the orphanage. Our hearts are set on the day when he comes for us. So we must begin to behave as our new father behaves and to take on his character. And his way of behaving is unlike the ways of this world. His character is holiness. It's the word Peter uses. To be holy means to be pure, to be, to be clean, to be good, to be righteous. It also means to be separate and set apart because the world isn't those ways. It's like you, you go into the woods in December and, and you look at all the beautiful spruce trees out there in the woods covered with snow in the moonlight. And of all the trees, you, you, you pick one that's the right size and just the right shape and you cut it down. And you, you take it home and you put it in your living room and you decorate it. And it's not just a regular spruce tree anymore. Like all the others. It's become holy in a sense. It's a Christmas tree. It's been set apart for a special use. It's not just a common tree anymore. That's the idea of holiness. That's what God has done for us. In choosing us to be his own children. He's special. He's set apart. He's holy. And we as his children now are too. A little later, we'll get to Peter's fourth imperative and we'll see what this holiness looks like when you live it out. But first, Peter's third imperative. Live in reverent fear. I wonder if the kids in the orphanage, or, or any kids in, in orphanages for that matter, have any idea what is involved in their adoption when they're adopted. I wonder if they have any idea how much their future parents long for a child. Maybe they've struggled through infertility. Maybe they've lost a child. I wonder if those kids have any idea how much paperwork their future parents have filled out, not to mention the interviews and the case studies and the background checks. I wonder if those kids have any idea how much money their future parents have shelled out or how much 
or how many portfolios they've reviewed searching for the child who will be a good fit for them. I wonder if those kids, in the case of an overseas adoption, have any idea how far their future parents have traveled to find them and to bring them home. If these kids could grasp all that, if, if they could take it in in their hearts, they no doubt would experience reverent fear. A sense of awe at being sought so much and loved so much. Peter puts it this way for us in verses 18 to 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter's saying, stop and realize what a great price your father paid to redeem you from your past circumstances so you could come home and join his family. That price was more precious than silver, more precious than gold, more precious than any perishable thing. That price was the blood, the life of his own son who willingly agreed to lay down his life so that you could join the family as his brothers and sisters. Author Leslie Flynn once told the story of an orphan boy who was living with his grandmother when their old house caught fire. A man named William Dixon, a widower from their town, climbed an iron drain pipe to rescue the boy, the boy clinging to his neck as he climbed back down. Unfortunately, the grandmother perished before they could get to her. Several weeks later, there was a public hearing to decide who would have custody of, of this poor child who had no family. A farmer, a teacher, and a wealthy banker all gave reasons why they felt they should be chosen to give this boy a home. But as they talked, the, the despondent boy just stared at the floor. Then Dixon walked to the front and slowly held up his hands. The crowd gasped that his hands were covered with severe sores and scars. But the boy leapt up in recognition. This was the man who had saved his life and his hands had been burned as he climbed the hot pipe. With a leap, the boy threw himself into this man's arms, put his arms around his neck and held on to him. The other men silently walked away, leaving the boy and his rescuer alone. Those marred hands had settled the issue. Peter says, realize the precious price paid for your redemption. Then Peter goes on that this great, wonderful plan of redemption of the father and son to, to redeem you and to have you as their own had been on their hearts for a long, long time. Verse 20, the father chose the son. The son agreed to do this before the creation of the world. All that time, as they looked out into their future, the future, their love for us was there, a, a secret, a secret surprise. All those years, centuries and millennia, it, it remained hidden to be revealed now in these last times for you and for me. So live in awe in reverent fear 
of just how much you are valued and loved. Peter also gives us a second reason to live in reverent fear. Verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, our father judges the work of each one of us. What we do, how we live, will be judged and evaluated by a perfect, impartial, objective judge who plays no favorites. And so we live in reverent fear. Now this seems like a contradiction to me. Does it seem like a contradiction to you? Earlier, Paul just told us to look forward to the grace that was waiting for us when Christ returns. Now he's warning us to be afraid because we're going to be judged. What's going on here? Which way is it? Does God save us from judgment by his sheer grace through Christ's blood? Or or does God judge us based on our, our works, the things we have done? Well, I looked up this word work in verse 17, where it says God judges each person's work. And and what I found is very helpful. Whenever the New Testament speaks negatively about works, as in um, our works can never save us, and we're saved by grace, not by works. Works there is always in the plural. Works. On the other hand, whenever the New Testament uses the word work in the singular, it's always positive. God wants us to do good work. God will judge our work. God does not judge us based on our works, but God does judge our work. Did I say that right? Not our works, but our work. Now to highlight the difference between these two, let me point out, that the work that Peter's talking about in this passage is clarified by a second word that shows up in verses 15 and 17 and 18. Now, the NIV translation, which a lot of us read, uses three different phrases to translate this Greek word, but it's the same Greek word in each case. The phrases are, verse 15, in all you do, verse 17, live your lives, verse 18, way of life. But this is the same word, and it means your conduct, your behavior, your lifestyle. It's your pattern of conduct in which you you express the principles you live by. I like the translation, way of life. Your way of life. So verse 15, be holy in your whole way of life. Verse 17, live your way of life in reverent fear. Verse 18, you have been redeemed from the empty way of life that was handed down to you by your ancestors. Way of life. That's the work, singular, which Peter says God is judging in verse 17. Are you following me? God is judging our way of life, our work. So, if people had to use one word to sum up your whole way of life, what would they use? Loving, generous, gracious, giving, or self-absorbed, materialistic, complacent, bitter, apathetic. God judges our work, our way of life, without favoritism. 
We're saved by grace and through our faith in Jesus Christ. Yes. But not everyone who says they believe in Jesus and his grace really believes. Right? So how does God know who really believes and who just says they believe or thinks they believe? Or hangs around with a bunch of people who believe? Well, it's easy. God judges our work. He looks at our way of life. And then he knows immediately what we really believe. And whether we've really embraced his amazing grace. Because it's easy to mouth the right words and even to think the right thoughts. And we can fool others. We, we can maybe even fool ourselves. But if we really believe and trust in Jesus Christ and his incredible grace, it will shake us to the core and transform our lives. So live in reverent fear, Peter says. God is looking at your work, at your way of life, and judging the fruit that's there or that's not there. And he's judging it impartially. Wow. What a serious situation. On the one hand, God loves us so much that he's paid the greatest price to redeem us as his own. On the other hand, he judges our lives impartially to see if we really trust and believe in his love and in his saving grace expressed in his son, Jesus. Our lives really matter to God. And the stakes are high. So we need to wake up, Peter counsels us, and live in reverent fear. Not like orphans who have nothing serious to live for, but like children of the great king himself. Which leads us to our fourth and final imperative that Peter gives us in verse 22. Love with a fervent love. And now we know what holiness looks like. It looks like love. If we are focused on the future, if we exemplify the family holiness, if we live our way of life with reverent fear, then we will love fervently. This word fervently, or the NIV translates it deeply, can also be translated earnestly, eagerly, persistently, perseveringly, constantly. The literal idea of this word is stretching out. Like a runner straining, stretching out for the finish line to cross the tape first. Focused, striving, not giving up, pressing deep down in. To reach. That's how we're to love. Because we belong to a family now. And that's how the family loves. Especially, that's how our new father loves. His love stretches. His love strains. His love burns within him. For us. For us. So much does He love us that He gave up His own Son. So much does the Son love us that He gave His own life to, to reach us, to, to find us, to redeem us, to, to adopt us, to embrace us as His own. 
And now that we are His children, we must learn to love others the same way. Peter continues in verse 23, For we have been born again, or for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Here it gets even more wonderful. Because we discover that we haven't just been adopted. We've actually been born all over again. We don't just belong to our new family legally. But somehow, in some mysterious way, the Father has actually imparted His very DNA into us. So we are His genuine children. We've been born not with perishable seed, but with imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Commentators disagree on whether this seed that Peter's talking about is a plant seed or or whether it's a human seed, a sperm, or, or whether it's both. I think it's both. You can do that with poetic imagery. But Peter's logic is clear, however you want to picture it. If the seed is imperishable, then so is our love to be. That's the drift of his argument. God has planted his seed, his word in us. His word never perishes. It never stops working. It causes us to be born again, to become new creations. But it doesn't stop there. No, it keeps working. That seed keeps growing us keeps transforming us, keeps making us like the Father. And so we can never stop loving. Our love has to keep stretching out. It has to keep straining and striving to keep loving. I mean, everyone in the world loves a little bit. Love is nothing unusual or foreign to this world. You know, go on any street in New York City or in Westchester County and and you'll find love. But what makes us who are God's children holy and separate and different? Like that Christmas tree is different from all those other spruce trees in the forest. Is that our love is fervent. Our love doesn't give up. Other people's love may grow cold and give up just like the grass withers and the flower falls. But God has planted a seed in us which is imperishable, which just keeps working on us, keeps empowering us to keep loving like God loves. Persistently, tenaciously, deeply, earnestly. So Peter exhorts us, love and keep loving. Never give up. Not ever. After all, that's how God loves us. And we're in His family now. Let's respond for a minute now in praise to God for His love for us in Jesus Christ. And then I'll give you the challenge. As we get ready to celebrate communion... We come to this table as the family of God. We remember the incredible price that God paid and the incredible love 
that God expressed to have us as his children, to adopt us, to cause us to be born again into his family. The bread reminds us of Christ's body given for us. The cup reminds us of his blood 